Hello, and thank you all for joining today. I'm Susan Lipp, Editor-in-Chief of Trust and Estates, and I'll be your moderator. This webinar, which is sponsored by Fiduciary Trust Charitable, includes a panel of philanthropic experts who will discuss strategies to maximize the value of using donor-advised funds, including when to use a donor-advised fund versus a private foundation, how to convert a donor-advised fund to a private foundation, strategies to maximize the tax benefits of using donor-advised funds, innovative giving vehicles such as a flexible endowment and a restricted donor-advised fund, and engaging the next generation with charitable giving. On our panel, we have Katie Collins, Vice President and Investment Officer at Fiduciary Trust Company and member of the Philanthropic Services Practice. Katie has two decades of experience in the th philanthropic sector and was previously a philanthropic strategist at Fidelity Charitable. Todd, Todd Eckler is president of Fiduciary Trust Charitable, a public charity and donor advised fund sponsor. And Kelly Warino is vice president and trust counsel at Fiduciary Trust Company. Kelly has special expertise in foundations and estate planning. You can find more information about today's speakers by clicking on the speaker bio widget at the bottom of your screen. Before we get started, I'll cover a few housekeeping items to improve your viewing and listening experience. You can move your webcast windows around by dragging on the title bar or resize them by clicking on your lower right corner. At the bottom of your screen, you'll find multiple application widgets. By clicking on these buttons, you can open and close widgets on your screen but that won't remove you from the webinar. A copy of today's slide presentation is available for download, download in the resource list widget. Please note that this webinar has been accepted for one CE credit hour towards the AEP designation program. The live broadcast of this event has been approved for one CFP board CE credit hour. Investments in Wealth Institute has accepted this program for one hour of CE credit towards the CIMA, CPWA, CIMC, and RMA certifications. Instructions for credit submittal are available in the resource list widget. We welcome questions about our topic and we'll answer as many as we can following the presentation, but feel free to submit yours to the queue at any time. Just type it into the Q&A window on the left-hand side of your screen and hit the submit button. Please also be aware that today's session is being recorded and will be available for on-demand viewing following today's event. Simply log in using the same URL as you're using today. And with that, let's get started and I will turn things over to Todd. Thanks, Susan. I'd also like to thank you all for joining today and thank Trust and Estates for partnering with us for today's discussion. I hope you'll find it valuable to all of those who are involved directly in charitable giving or are supporting your clients' philanthropic activities. Before we dive in, I wanted to take a minute to provide a quick overview of Fiduciary Trust Charitable. FT Charitable is an independent public charity founded in 1990, which sponsors charitable giving vehicles, including donor-advised funds, which we launched in 2017. Fiduciary Trust Company, which is headquartered in Boston and has about 20 billion in assets under supervision, is our administrative services provider. Donors can nominate the investment advisor with whom they want to work. So fiduciary trust and other investment advisors provide custom investment management services for our donors and manage the donor relationships. We serve a range of donors with some donors contributing our minimum of $50,000 to donors who are expected to contribute 100 million or more. There are four areas that distinguish FT Charitable. Integrated personal service, from experienced advisors who may be managing non-donor advised fund accounts for you. Expertise, a variety of areas that we have expertise in, which I hope will become apparent from our discussion today. Flexibility and innovation, including a tailored investment approach and special donor advised fund features. And sustainability, sustainable investments in our operations, and we've signed the Hate is Not Charitable Pledge. If you're interested in learning more or working with us, please reach out to me or visit ftcharitable.org. Now let's dive into the content. Donor advised funds are one of the fastest growing areas within philanthropy, as well as within wealth management. 
Katie, could you orient us to the overall giving landscape and the roles of donor advised funds and private foundations? Sure, thanks Todd. It's a pleasure to be here today with everyone. So to Todd's point, to take on a big picture view, in 2021, over $480 billion was given to various charitable organizations in the United States. Now, as you can see here, about 67% of that came from individuals. Interesting to note a trend within that individual category is the growth of a mega gift, which is gifts of $450 million or more from one individual. So about 5% of the giving in that category in 2021 were those mega gifts. So something certainly to watch as we see familiar names in the news give larger and larger sums away. If you look to the right here, these are the various sectors that folks are giving to. So religion has consistently been at the top, although I'll say it was interesting in 20 and 21, we noted that a lot of the human service organizations like food pantries, clothing, shelters were categorized as religious organizations. So it'll be interesting to see if that number stabilizes or religion giving continues to increase. From 20 to 21, um, giving to education actually decreased. Although I'd be surprised if that continues this year, just given on the recent research released around the detrimental impact of the pandemic on education. And in the good news department, funding to health and arts increased from 20 to 21. Um, arts took a really big hit in 20 when the pandemic struck um, with museums closing and um, performances stopping. Um, so I imagine in this year as well, those giving categories will increase. So if we look to that individual category, there's many ways to give, and this isn't exhaustive here, actually. Um, in that mega gift category, I've seen some mega donors, if you will, um, found LLCs actually for their giving. So there continue to grow uh, various options for donors to give away funds. We'll go deeper into private foundations and donor advised funds in a minute, um, but there are various other vehicles folks can consider from charitable lead to remainder trust, charitable gift annuities, the old checkbook giving, which is still very popular despite many vehicles available to donors, um, intermediary organizations have continued to grow. So those are like community foundations or fiscal sponsors. Um, and I've been inspired by the continued growth of giving circles. Um, I think some donors find giving to be really isolating. And I think that they feel empowered to be in a group setting, to learn amongst each other and to grant together. So let's go deeper in private foundations and donor advice funds. So there are two types of private foundations. There are private operating foundations and private non-operating foundations. Today, we'll largely focus on private non-operating foundations, which are smaller family foundations, probably what you're most familiar with. Private operating foundations are organizations that have programs and they run act uh, charitable activities. Um, so if you think of the Gates Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Hewlett Foundation, they also have very large staff. Um, today, we are gonna largely focus, as I said, on private non-operating foundations, so back to that model. Um, in that model, uh, you know, a family, a donor individual will establish a 501c3 private foundation. They'll make a gift of assets from securities to cash to illiquid assets. They'll get the tax deduction. And then at that point, they're really in legal control over the assets and investments. And yes, the goal is to grant out as well. Um, as many of you are probably familiar with, there's a 5% required distribution, which my colleague Kelly Garina will get into more specifics around that in a minute. So, Going to then donor advised funds, the lovable acronym of DAF that you'll hear a lot of in this presentation. Um, so donor advised funds are provided by sponsor organizations. So public charities sponsor donor advised funds. A similar model in that a donor will make a gift of assets, the best one to be appreciated securities, but also cash and illiquid assets. They'll get the tax deduction. And then really at that point, the legal control goes to the public charity that sponsors the donor advised fund. But I'll say the donor has advisory privileges. They can name their fund pretty much whatever they'd like. Um, they can then pick investment selections based on whoever the provider is and what their guidelines are. And then they can, of course, grant out the door. And one of the really great things about donor advice fund is really in theory, it can grow tax-free based on your investment allocation. Um, and so um, with that, I'll take a look here at the growth of donor advice funds and private foundations. So you'll see on the asset size, private foundations still really surpass donor advised funds. But that middle category is what I find most inspiring and in that despite that pretty large gap with assets, the grants really from donor advised funds is catching up to private foundations. And I think that just shows you that folks are motivated, they're galvanized, they wanna make a difference and there's more active grant making I think coming from donor advised funds. And then lastly, for all kind of the talk about donor advised funds out there, um, they are growing in popularity, but still a small percentage of overall grants going out the door um, in 2019, about 13%. So that was a big picture view 
of donor advised funds, private foundations, and the world of philanthropy. Um, and I'm happy to um, introduce my colleague, Kelly Garino, who, Kelly, can you take us into more detail about the differences, specific features of the donor advised fund versus the private foundation? Yes, Katie, I'm happy to do that. Um, first, I'd like to echo both Todd's and Katie's uh, earlier welcome to everyone who's joined us today. I'm happy to be here, happy to be with my colleagues talking about donor advised funds. I feel like we have the added bonus of um, the time of year, we're close to Thanksgiving, we're close to end of year holidays and just the end of the year when clients and, and maybe yourself are thinking about charitable giving and um, so that will play into our discussion today also. Uh, so if a client is trying to decide between a donor advice fund and, sorry, I tried to advance the slides and I've just lost everything. Here we go. Um, if a client is trying to decide between a donor advice fund and a private foundation, which is better for them, um, the next uh, part of the discussion should help you um, have that conversation uh, with them. With all of these uh, differences, keep in mind that What's important is the client's goals, what they actually want to do with their uh, charitable giving. And those are connected to these categories. They don't live in isolation. What's important to your client might be more important. Um, what's important to your client uh, uh, changes the importance of some of these categories uh, to them and how it's connected to their charitable giving. So let's get started kind of at the beginning is the logical place to, uh, to start setting up a donor advised fund or a private foundation. Setting up a DAF is just very simple. Essentially, it's a plug and play activity. The client chooses a DAF provider, opens an account at that DAF provider, and the choices at that point are who to name as charitable advisor and what name to give the DAF. Uh, the ongoing administration of DAFs are also very simple. There's essentially nothing that the, the donor needs to do Compare that to private foundations, which are definitely more complex. When establishing a private foundation, uh, you're establishing a separate legal entity. So typically, a client would need to work with an attorney to create um, some kind of organizing uh, organizing documents to create that separate entity. So it may be organized as a trust, and it would have a trust instrument, or a corporation where you would have articles of organization and bylaws. And within those organizing documents would be the governing structure for that private foundation. So choices that the donor can make about who should be in charge, will there be trustees, will there be a board of directors, uh, how often will they meet, what type of authority will they have, all of those are baked into the organizing document and become part of the structure of the private foundation. Or if there's specific um, activities that they want private foundation to make, again, that could be uh, set up initially in that initial structure. So more complex, but also can be set up um, in a way that the donor would like. Once established, the private foundation does need to obtain tax exempt status. So that requires an extra application to the IRS, um, an application for exempt status, typically on form uh, 1023. Once established, the DAF or the private foundation needs to be funded. And here, DAFs are more favorable. They have more favorable income tax, charitable deduction limits, and the amounts are here. Cash gifts to DAFs um, have a, a limit for adjusted gross income of 60% compared to 30% for private foundations. If you're gifting securities or other assets, uh, the deduction limit is 30% of AGI for DAFs and 20% for private foundations. How much this matters to you or to your clients depends on the amount that is being put into the foundation or the, the DAF and the amount of taxable income. So that varies in each instance. Moving then to growing the funds that are in the, the DAF or the private foundation. As Katie mentioned, you know, once funded, the, this growth is essentially tax-free. These are tax-exempt entities. Most DAFs liquidate donated assets fairly soon after they're received. With private foundations, there's uh, tends to be more control and um, more flexibility in that timing. The type of investment options that are available vary a fair amount. Many DAFs will have uh, somewhat limited choices. That, of course, depends on the DAF sponsor. Um, so as Todd mentioned, Fiduciary Trust Charitable, for example, works with a number of different investment advisors. So the investment options available to 
individuals who open DAFs um, with Fiduciary Trust Charitable will reflect the options available through those investment advisors. Private foundations tend to have a little more flexibility, uh, but they are, because they're private foundations, subject to the private foundation rules, which include rules about um, jeopardizing investments and also excess business holdings. Private foundations, again, because they're subject to the private foundation rules, are subject to a tax on investment income. This is a 1.39% annual tax. Uh, this was this re this number replaced the uh, in 2019 uh, used to be a 2% or 1% tax depending on the level of giving from the foundation. Donor advised funds are not subject to this tax at all. Looking at expenses, uh, both DAFs and private foundations will have investment management fees, um, for, usually based on assets under management, and private foundations tend to have kind of more ongoing expenses, legal expenses, often because they're more complicated. They might also have staff that they're paying um, and other operating expenses for the type of activities they carry out. So in connection with investing and growing the assets in a DAF or private foundation, donors, of course, will be making, uh, will be carrying out their philanthropic activities. For donor advised funds, this uh, typically consists of uh, recommending grants to IRS qualified charities that will fulfill the, the donor's um, philanthropic goals. Qualified charities generally are 501c3 public charities, but also can be private operating foundations. And as Katie pointed out earlier, there's a difference between operating and non-operating foundations. Um, DAFs cannot uh, make distributions to non-operating private foundations. Private foundations are have a little more flexibility in the type of um, grants that can be made. They can you know, also obviously give to IRS qualified charities, but also can make gifts to individuals. So one question that often comes up in this category is whether DAFs can make uh, distributions for scholarships. And donor advice funds can do that. You can give, um, make a grant from a DAF to a school, university, or other organization that has a scholarship program but the donor advisor cannot be involved in the operation of the scholarship or choosing um, who the scholarship recipients are. Private foundations, on the other hand, can have their own scholarship program and the foundation board can be involved in those decisions and in, in you know, receiving applications and making decisions about them. Um, but a caution with private foundation scholarship programs, they do need to be pre-approved by the IRS. Another, uh, big dis difference between donor advised funds and private foundations that was mentioned previously is the minimum distribution. So DAFs have no regulatory or statutory minimum distribution, but some DAF sponsors have put their own rules in place to encourage distributions out of DAFs. Private foundations, on the other hand, are subject to the regulatory uh, private foundation rule of a 5% minimum distribution. And a few final categories for us. Um, one is uh, anonymity or disclosure. DAFs are nice in that they allow for a level of privacy. Uh, if your client sets up a DAF, and as Todd was saying, maybe it's 50,000 or 10 million or 100 million, there's no public access to what that amount is. The reporting that's done for donor advice funds is at the sponsor level, and so the DAF's um, assets are uh, taken all together, it's not separate reporting for each DAF. Obviously, the, the person who set up the donor advised fund, so the donor advisor knows what's in their account and they get a statement for that account, um, but the reporting that's public um, is at a consolidated uh, level. And then on the level of um, grant making, uh, grants that come out of a donor advised fund, the recipient charity, the donor advisor can determine whether they want the recipient charity to know which donor advised fund the grant came from, or they can also keep it anonymous. Private foundations, on the other hand, lack this level of privacy. If you and I want to know the value of assets in any particular foundation, let's say the TB12 Foundation, we can look it up a number of places online, Form 990. Um, that particular foundation is Massachusetts-based, and so we could look on the Attorney General's uh, website that also has filings and, and public information there. Final two concepts we have here are actually fairly related. Um, the risk for um, donor 
in donor advised funds for donors is fairly low. And that's because the control they have, the legal control is, um, is also lower. So the donor advisors have advisory rights uh, with respect to making grant recommendations and the investments, but no actual legal control. In private foundations, the donors have retained, often if they're on the board or, um, or one of the trustees, they've retained that control, but commensurate with that control is the fiduciary responsibility and the requirement to make sure that foundation oversight, compliance, um, filings, and following the private foundation rules um, has been followed. So there we walk through a number of, of the categories of, of differences between the donor advice funds and private foundations. And I think Katie now is going to um, tie that back to uh, clients and how this might be used um, in kind of practical situations. Exactly. Thanks, Kelly. I thought it might be helpful to give a few stories of how donors work together with both vehicles or use one over the other. Kelly has already kind of covered kind of the anonymous nature of the DAF, right? Kind of because the, the joke with the private foundation is it isn't really overly private, right? And that you have to disclose assets and grants. Um, you know, I've worked with some donors who had sizable private foundations, had a liquidity event, and didn't want to add more to that pot, right? So they decided to open a donor advised fund to have a variety of vehicles and also just to kind of conceal their overall wealth, right? And not have it all there publicly for everyone to see and find on Google. Um, I also have seen really you know, interesting ways folks have used the donor advised fund. I think anyone with a foundation and or a donor advised fund should have a strategy around their grant making. Um, but you know, some folks who might have a foundation with a very particular mission statement can use a DAF for giving that falls outside of that mission statement, right? Or for a special project. So I worked with one donor um, she had a sizable private foundation um, and she wanted to give uh, to start funding for a museum in her home city, which really veered from her mission statement. Um, so she, for five years, instead of giving into the foundation, she gave into the DAF and she was the seed funder for this museum um, and was able to help them construct it. And she was able to accomplish that through a DAF, which again was very different from what her foundation was focused on. Um, I've also seen uh, many families use donor advised funds as a way to kind of train the next gen. So whether it's generation two, three, four, or five, um, maybe there's an expectation that in years to come, they'll take over the reins of the private foundation um, and play more of a leadership role. So why not use donor advised funds now as a way to kind of let them explore their philanthropic interests, let them choose their own investments within the donor advised fund, um, have them learn about how to conduct due diligence on a nonprofit, what role they wanna play as a donor, and then, you know, hopefully set them up for success when they play more of a leadership role with their family's foundation. Um, so legacy planning. So um, I've seen some donors just really recognize that private foundations are either too burdensome or just not realistic for their families. So they maybe have grown children and grandchildren all over the country with varying interests. Um, and, you know, realistically getting everyone around the same table in the same city is just not feasible. Although Zoom can certainly help. Um, so with that, I've seen some folks either set up a formal estate plan where a foundation will be kind of wound down um, into donor advised funds, or I've seen some folks even set up test accounts um, while they're living to say, hey, why don't we see if the donor advised fund can accomplish everything we're currently doing in the foundation? So we feel really good about this. And then lastly, um, you know, certainly we've referenced this before, private foundations can contribute into donor advised funds. A bunch of the examples I just gave are that. Um, and some donors do count that towards their 5% distribution requirement. Um, there's been some scrutiny around that and some more kind of regulatory guidance that's come out as of late. So Kelly, can you help us um, understand what some of that guidance has looked like in the past few months and few years? Yep, thank you, Katie. Um, so, as Katie mentioned, we wanted to highlight a couple of regulatory areas. One is where donors are receiving a benefit from a DAF, and the other is um, the idea of how quickly funds are distributed out of DAFs once they're um, put in. Uh, so, on the first one, let's uh, just a reminder that donor advised funds are defined by the Internal Revenue Code. So, it's a, a code section that we're looking to for definition. Um, this is under Code Section 4966. And that's where the definition is and uh, discussion of what taxable distributions are from DAFs. The, the following code section, 4967, talks about uh, where there's a more than incidental benefit. That's the actual term, more than incidental benefit. Um, and a DAF donor can't receive this. So a DAF donor and specific individuals related to that donor um, are not permitted to receive more than that incidental benefit. 
So typically with code sections, there's um, corresponding regulations. For donor advised funds, the regulations are in the works. The IRS is, um, has, them, has been drafting them and we're waiting for them. In the interim, the IRS uh, has issued it, uh, IRS notice 2017-73. Uh, it came out at the end of 2017, kind of a bonus gift. Nobody was quite expecting it. And this notice gives the IRS thinking on, on three of these points that are related to what Katie mentioned and, and these two things we're gonna highlight. Um, so three points in it. Um, one is that uh, distributions from DAFs cannot be made for things like event tickets. Um, so even if a donor pays the non-deductible portion of a, like a table at a charity event, um, that's not allowed as a distribution from a DAF. Um, something that is allowed is a distribution from a DAF for, to fulfill a donor pledge, and but only if certain rules are followed. And the primary um, rule in that area is that the donor vice fund, when making that distribution, cannot mention or have any discussion of the pledge when it's making that distribution to the recipient charity. So the donor can directly with the charity, but the, the DAF or the DAF sponsor um, can't talk about that pledge when making the distribution. And then the final um, or the third part of the notice was uh, a look-through mechanism that would prevent um, using a DAF to circumvent public support tests. So if a distribution is coming out of a private foundation um, to a, a public charity, that public charity um, using that, um, making it a more favorable part of the test calculation if it goes through a DAF first because the DAF is a public charity or the DAF sponsor is a public charity. Again, as we, we mentioned a few times that there's no statutory or regulatory requirement for minimum distributions from DAS, but there have been a number of proposals and discussions that there should be. Probably the legislation that's gotten maybe the most traction in this area is the Accelerating Charitable Efforts Act. Uh, this was bipartisan legislation introduced um, a year ago last summer and the goal again is to ensure that funds are distributed out of DAFs more quickly. Um, the way this legislation attempts to do that is um, limiting the charitable deduction until uh, funds actually come out of the DAF to the recipient charity. And then it also has a structure for time limiting certain types of DAFs that they would um, have a, essentially a term limit and, and end at a, a certain point. Um, so with these, with this guidance, again, you know, regulations coming out, legislation that's, um, you know, in the legislature but hasn't passed yet, it's important just to keep track of these things and it's developing, you know, a developing part of the donor advised fund world and, and important for us to keep um, track of that and pass that on to clients and other advisors. Great, thanks. So shifting gears a little bit, I know we've talked a lot about the way the different vehicles can be used together, donor advised funds and private foundations. I'm sure there are folks curious here today what it actually entails to convert a private foundation to a donor advice fund. So Kelly, could you walk us through some of those steps? Yes, happy to do that. Um, when I think through the steps that, or when we walk through these steps, I think about it on three levels. Um, and that's the level of the organizing documents, the state regulations, and then the federal um, requirements. So step one, I would say is looking at the organizing documents. Um, as we mentioned earlier, a private foundation could be formed as either a trust or a corporation. And as a corporation, it would have articles of organization and bylaws. As a trust, it'll have a trust instrument. So you look at those documents and what do they actually say about termination? Um, what circumstances have to exist for termination to be allowed? Who gets to decide about termination? Where do the funds go once they're terminated? Um, also, are there any particular limitations on use of the funds? All of those things would be in the documents. And if, if not, there may be um, statutory defaults. And then whoever has that ability to make the decision for terminating needs to take that action. So it might be a vote or it might be a resolution. Uh, typically, it would work with an attorney to draft those documents to formalize that decision. And second step would be to look at the state um, level requirement. So, uh, each foundation is going to be organized in a different state, and each state has their own rules. Um, they're similar, but have, has um, different rules about what needs to happen. In some states, for example, foundations that are established as trusts can simply terminate by their terms. 
especially if they're only grant making entities and they have no donor restrictive funds. In other cases, the state regulators may have to approve. So often that'll be the public charities division of the state attorney general's office. Um, sometimes the courts are involved. In Massachusetts, um, organizations that are formed as corporations will work with the public charities division to prepare a petition for dissolution and they'll work together until it's um, in a final form and then that gets submitted to the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court and is approved by the court. Um, so again, different in every state, need to look at what your state requires. Um, moving to step three would be to establish a donor advice fund. And as we learned earlier, this is extremely simple. So the decision here is um, uh, where to establish it, pick the, the donor advice fund provider a uh, decision about what to name the fund. It could be the same name as the private foundation or maybe something similar, or it could have a new name. And then also determine who will be the charitable advisors. Often this is um, the trustees of the foundation or the board will be the charitable advisors, but again, that could, could shift. And one thing we wanted to point out here is that um, sometimes you can set up more than one donor advised fund when terminating a private foundation, and sometimes that makes sense to do. We've done, we've been involved with a number of different clients that have done this in different ways. Uh, one we wanted to give an example of is a family that the parents set up a, a private foundation for their family's um, charitable giving goals and ran that during their lifetime. And then when they both passed, their children stepped into the trustee role. Um, so three different siblings. And the siblings kind of soon realized they each had different goals of how they wanted to further their family's film, philanthropic efforts. And so when they terminated their foundation, um, they set up three different dads. And <coughs> excuse me, um, they each were the charitable advisor of the separate DAP. And then, uh, you know, were able to um, kind of pursue the direction they wanted to uh, with that separate DAP. The next step is maybe the most important, or I guess just one of the important steps, is to establish a foundation reserve for final expenses. This often can be overlooked, um, and it can't be. Um, once assets are transferred from the private foundation to the DAF, they're no longer available for expenses that are occurred at the private foundation level. So any fees that are needed for final attorney's fees, taxes, um, filing fees, those need to be set aside before making the transfer. <clears throat> and then step five would be actually transferring the assets to the donor advised fund. And then the final step would be the to complete the final foundation tax filings. This would be at the state level and then also um, at the IRS. And I wanted to point out for the for the federal level, there's a nuance on this. There's actually two aspects to it. You have to terminate um, private foundation status. And there, as with private foundations, there's extra rules, always extra rules. Um, terminating private foundation status comes under code section 507. And generally a termination tax is required in notice to the IRS. An exception to that is when assets are transferred to certain public charities that have been, um, and donor advice funds fit within that, that have been around for more than 60 months. If that type of transfer happens, no notice is required and no termination tax. So it doesn't apply typically in this situation, but wanted to mention it because it's important to know that that termination tax exists and that you need to make sure you take the right steps so it doesn't end up applying. And then terminating the entity itself is as simple as on the final form 990 PF checking file in the, the category on the first page where, where it asks about that. Um, now the the private foundation is done and the charitable giving is operating through the, the DAF structure. As, uh, as Kelly mentioned, we've had experience converting uh, charitable entities, including private foundations to donor advised funds. Um, and typically family private foundations have a broad mandate and can be converted to a DAF in a straightforward manner. Like the example of the siblings um, converting a private foundation to multiple DAFs. And I see some of the questions here in the, uh, in the, in the Q&A that people have questions about restricted uh, foundations and can you convert those to a donor advised fund? Um, 
Well, one of the challenges is when you go to convert something that is restricted to a traditional donor advised fund, you're not going to get through. The, I mean, it's just it's not the way that um, entity was set up. It was set up for a particular purpose, say, to fund an educational need. And if you then go to the attorney general's office and other uh, entities to approve a conversion to a donor advised fund, which doesn't have such restrictions, they're, of course, not going to approve it because those funds were given for a particular restricted purpose. So we created a special offering at Fiduciary Trust Charitable called a Restricted Donor Advised Fund. And basically what it does is it carries through and matches the restriction of the private foundation, or it could be we've done this with public charities converting to donor advised funds as well. Um, it carries through that restriction to the donor advised fund. And so then you go to the attorney general's office and other bodies and um, you can get it uh, you know, more directly and easily approved because you're carrying through the similar mission. So um, this is something, it's a good example of how at FT Charitable, we really listen to donors' needs and try and find creative and, and effective ways to help support their charitable giving. Um, and uh, to the best of my knowledge, I, I, I haven't seen this at other donor advised fund sponsors, um, certainly not a common uh, common occurrence. Todd, while we're on the topic of innovative charitable giving vehicles, I think you wanted to take our audience through FT Charitable's recent work on fiduciary flexible endowment fund. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Kelly. This is another need that we've seen among donors. So uh, it's quite common that a donor might want to set up an endowment long-term gift to support an organization. So an example might be um, you, you want to give money to your college and you want to support the French program. And um, the, the concern you might have is, well, will this school, um, you know, down the line, will they keep having a French program? And given some of the challenges nonprofits might have even longer term, um, will, the, will the organization be there um, to, to receive my gift, you know, years and years down the, down the line? And so uh, a typical way that you might do an, a, a, a endowment gift to give it directly to the charitable entity. But in that case, if the uh, program no longer exists or the charity is, uh, you know, is not financially viable anymore, um, your options for redirecting those funds to or, or, or recommending redirection to those funds may be somewhat limited. Um, if the organization um, completely be, becomes insolvent, it goes through the attorney general's office and oftentimes They'll look to other nonprofits that have similar missions where your funds can be redirected. You might be consulted in that process, but you have you, you have limited ability to, to influence it. And so what we've done is we've created a special offering called uh, fiduciary flexible endowment. You can also accomplish this through a private foundation. I'll talk about the differences in a moment. Um, but the way this would work is you donate money, uh, you donate the, your charitable gift to uh, the fiduciary flexible endowment fund. It's not, it has some characteristics of a donor advised fund, but it's not technically a donor advised fund. And then fiduciary trust charitable provides support to the cause and the charity that you, um, that you want supported. So in the case of the um, example, giving to a French program at your college, um, we make those grants every year and make sure that the school is meeting the criteria that, uh, that was laid out when you made the grant. And then if they can't fulfill those criteria, those funds can be directed to a broad set of other purposes. And we would consult the donor or, or donors designees in that process. So, in, and it basically could be given to other causes that, that you um, make us aware of when you donate the money to the fund in the first place. So it could be you know, a broad set of other educational causes. It could be even broader, uh, broader than that. So it gives you much more ability to to have funds end up in other places should the primary charity um, uh, not not play out the way that you uh, that you had hoped you can also do this similarly through a private foundation and a lot of the differences between donor advised funds and private foundations that Kelly mentioned earlier apply applies here and some of the advantages of the flexible endowment fund again while it's not technically a donor advised fund it does have a lot of those benefits of a public charity in terms of uh, AGI deductions and, and no investment uh, income tax and, and uh, a bunch of the other uh, other dimensions. So um, this is just an example of 
how we try to be flexible um, in the way that we help our donors uh, achieve their goals. Thanks, Todd. In addition to choosing uh, charitable vehicle giving vehicles like this, um, it's also important, we've talked about, to find ways to maximize the use of the vehicles so that there are more funds available for giving. Along those lines, um, could you share next some of the tax saving strategies associated with donor advised funds and charitable giving? Sure, Kelly. Uh, one of the common ones that I'm sure is familiar to most of our viewers is donating appreciated stock to a donor advised fund. Um, so if you donate appreciated stock to a DAF, you may avoid capital gains tax and qualify for a deduction when you've owned that asset for at least a year. And this is an example um, here of giving $10,000 of Apple stock to a donor advised fund. So in this example, uh, let's say you have a cost basis of $3,000 that you paid for, for that stock. It's appreciated, now it's worth $10,000. So um, first of all, if you, if you gift that to a donor advised fund um, versus selling, this, selling the stock, you avoid paying capital gains tax on the appreciation, which is um, up to almost 24% federal tax and any applicable state and local tax. You also receive a charitable tax deduction on the total gift amount if you're itemizing deductions. So it's up to 37% federal in the current tax law and any applicable in state and local tax. So, um, so that's quite a, quite a significant uh, tax saving. So if you add it up in this particular example, the value of avoiding capital gains tax would be about $2,000 and the value of the charitable deduction would be about uh, $4,200. So you have over a $6,000 tax benefit from uh, gifting um, $10,000 to the donor advised fund. I'd also point out if you, um, if, if you contribute assets to a charitable beneficiary such as a donor advised fund, um, you also reduce your taxable estate. So if you have an estate that's subject to uh, estate taxes, um, the, uh, the, the top uh, federal estate tax level is 40%, so you can see you can have another sizable charitable impact from, from um, donating to a donor advised fund down the line in terms of saving on estate tax that uh, could be similar to the actual value of, uh, of the gift. I also want to talk about another tax uh, saving strategy that again can save on taxes, make more funds available for charitable giving if you want to redeploy them that way, and that's charitable deduction bunching. And the uh, easiest way to describe it is to give you an example. So here's uh, an example of a couple who gives 20,000 a year annually to charitable causes. So in this chart, you can see 20,000 each of four years. And if you look at their uh, federal income tax deductions, uh, if they're itemizing, they would get $20,000 uh, uh, deduction for the charitable giving every year. And then um, let's say in this example, they're maxing out the state and local tax deductions at 10,000 a year, and they don't have any mortgage interest. So their total deductions are 30,000 uh, 30, a year. So over the course of four years, they have 120,000 in tax deductions. Now in this situation, the standard deduction is, uh, for 2023, it's uh, federal standard deduction is $27,700. So. Um, by itemizing in this situation, they're not getting a lot of uh, tax benefits, just the difference between the 30,000 and the 27,700. Um, so it's a, it's a small, small uh, benefit. So with charitable deduction bunching, the way that works is you put multiple years worth of charitable giving into a donor advised fund and then donate them out to charities at the same uh, level that you uh, would have otherwise done. In this case, um, you give the same uh, 20000 a year to charities over four years, but um, by putting it in a donor advised fund in the first year, you can take a $90,000 itemized deduction, and then in the next three years, just take the standard deduction, which for simplicity's example, I just uh, said was the 2023 uh, standard deduction of 27.7. So if you add that up over the four years, you have 173,100 in, in uh, total tax deductions. And so if you compare the two, the charitable deduction bunching, you end up with 
um, about 53,000 more in additional federal income tax deductions over the four years. And you don't have to do four years, you could do two years, three years. Obviously the tax consequences would be different. And in all of these examples, both the donating stock as well as the charitable deduction bunching, it's very important to consult with your tax and wealth advisors on your specific situation because it really can vary by, um, by individual. Thanks, Todd. We've spent the past uh, few minutes largely discussing financial aspects of charitable giving vehicles. And now I think we'd like to circle back to Katie's earlier comments relating to engaging the next generation in charitable giving. Katie, do you want to share your further thoughts on the, that front? Sure. Thanks, Kelly. And I know this is a lot to, to discuss in less than an hour. Um, I do want to bring it back to something I said earlier before we get into discussing the next gen around kind of mission, vision, values. So regardless of the giving vehicle, I think philanthropy really offers a great opportunity for um, an advisor working with clients or a family member to have a conversation with their family about uh, values, what's important to, to these folks, you know, the impact and change they most want to make in the world. And it's really powerful. Um, and I find with advisors in particular, it can really get you to a deeper place with your clients um, and having that philanthropic conversation and talking about the history and tradition of maybe their family and then the legacy they want to leave in the world. Um, so in terms of engaging the next generation, you know, whether again, you're an advisor engaging a client family or you yourself, you know, are thinking about talking with your partner or your family around giving, um, it can be a really powerful and moving experience. And I find that this time of year, there's no better time of year to think about this um, in, in terms of heading into the holidays as well as Giving Tuesday coming up. Um, so volunteerism, you know, can't be overstated. There are many nonprofits now that um, accommodate children, tweens, teens, young adults, um, and it's a great way to get folks kind of engaged at, at a young age. Um, similar to that, you know, setting up a volunteer day, whether it's with family members and it's a tradition, maybe the day after Thanksgiving or something over a summer holiday, um, it's, it's a really great tradition to establish and you can do with friends or colleagues as well. And again, so much need, whether it's just, you know, gathering coats together or going and packaging up, you know, food baskets. Um, there's a lot, there's a lot to, um, to, to sip through. Um, this concept of give, save, spend um, kind of took off a few years ago. Um, I, I've seen many crafts online that have cute little mason jars that um, highlight the give, save, spend. I've done it with my own children. And one of the reasons I highlighted, I know it seems simple, um, but I've had a lot of families over the years come to me and say, I'm not sure I did the right thing. I now have, you know, older teens or young adults and they don't have any empathy. And I don't know how you teach empathy and I feel like I missed the boat. And I actually think if you start young, you know, with my four-year-old, we've even tried to kind of um, socialize this concept of giving. It really kind of, you know, sets a foundation for life of this is a part of who we are and this is what we're, you know, we expected to do. Um, and I think that then, you know, empathy can come with that. Um, back to the staff example, this is something I've actually done with families two days before Christmas, um, where we sat around the table and, you know, whether the family member was eight or 80, everyone was expected to come to the table with a suggestion of a nonprofit that they'd like to support from the family's donor advised fund. Um, obviously you can do it with a foundation as well, but it might be a little bit more specific to the mission, um, and the organizing uh, organizing documents that's articulated, but it's a great way. Um, again, to get the family together to do something nice and to start again to train that next gen on this is what we should be thinking about. This is how you should think about researching potentially a nonprofit um, and just to get those wheels in motion. And then kind of on the extreme end, I mean, you can also set up a formal meeting, right? Again, whether you're an advisor working with a client family um, or you're a matriarch that wants to engage your children and grandchildren to say, hey, let's come together and, and create a family vision or mission statement. Um, and let's discuss, you know, what, what's important to us. And I've even worked with families that have overarching value statement, not specific to philanthropy, where it's really just a guiding light for all of what they do. Um, and so I think there's something really empowering and beautiful in that um, when families come, come together and talk about that. So I think that's about all the time we have for our, um, a lot of presentations. So Susan, I think I'll hand it back to you for the Q&A. Okay, thank you, Katie. Um, yeah, we do have a bunch of questions. So um, looks like this first one is for Kelly. Um, what's the best time to shut down a private foundation? Should it be the year end? And what if an estate gift to the private foundation matured after the private foundation was shut down and moved to a donor advised fund? Sure, thanks. Thanks, Susan. I think that question is two parts. So let's answer the 
um, each part separately. In terms of the best time to shut down a private foundation, uh, kind of the operating rule that you should work around is that the final form 990PF, so the, the final filing that we talked about, is due uh, on the 15th day of the fifth month after the date of final asset distribution. So whenever those final assets are distributed, that sets your date for when the return is due. Um, so it can be any time during the year. What you'll run into is if it's earlier in the year, the forms might not be available yet. You'll just need to work around by using the last year's forms. Um, but other than that, um, it, any time during the year can work. Um, the second part of the question was about um, if uh, an estate is um, supposed to gift to a private foundation, but it's um, been dissolved. That will really depend on the facts of that um, uh, situation. When did the um, decedent die? When was their date of death? Um, what date was the foundation um, dissolved? And what language is in the gifting document? So what, whatever estate planning document, whether it's the will or the trust, um, that what language is in there for backup um, gifting or alternative gifting? Uh, bequests when uh, the original um, recipient is no longer in existence. Many gifts will say to this charity or their successor, and so there might be um, an argument that the successor is the DAF. You just need to look at the actual language that's used and, and those specific facts for that to know the answer to that one. Okay, thank you. Um, our next question is, can you use a donor advised fund for international grants? Todd, did you want to take that one? Sure, thanks, Susan, and thanks to uh, whoever su submitted that question. Um, the simple answer is, is yes, uh, in the sense that uh, the simplest way to recommend a grant to a US-based, uh, it's to recommend a grant to a US-based charity with a global mission. For instance, there are a lot of um, US-based charities that have been providing humanitarian aid uh, to Ukraine. Um, a second way to do it is to recommend a grant from a DAF to an intermediary charity, which is a US-based uh, nonprofit that funds overseas charities, like uh, CAF America is an example of that. Then uh, the third way is some, uh, some standard DAF providers will also allow certain donors, typically those with large international grants, to recommend international grants directly from DAFs using a process called equivalency determination or expenditure responsibility. At FT Charitable, we support international grant making through an intermediary partner and expect to have a direct international grant capability in place very shortly. Okay, uh, let's see, next question. Is there a workaround so you can use a donor advised fund for scholarships. Katie, can you take that one? Sure, and I know Kelly, you touched upon this earlier, so I'll be brief, but um, there's no need for a workaround. Um, folks that have donor advised funds can certainly give to scholarships, whether it be um, you know, a university or institution or establish their own scholarship. And, and in the latter, they would work with a 501c3, like a, a community foundation to formally establish um, a scholarship. Um, but I would say most of the university scholarships I've interacted with, they have very specific organizing principles and parameters for how the scholarships will be given out. Um, so the one kind of caveat is, you know, if you want to establish one or give to one, you can't select the scholarship recipient because um, that would veer into donor control issues. Okay, thanks. Um, if you set up a private foundation in the middle of its fiscal year, does the foundation still have to dis distribute 5% in that year? Kelly? I think I'm taking that one, yep. Um, so if the foundation's tax year is less than 12 months, it's essentially um, prorated. The So you'd have the percentage um, multiply that 5% by the number of days in the tax year that you are, are using and then divide that by 365. Um, so it is it, it does apply, um, but at a, a prorated amount. Okay, um, Todd, this one is for you. Can a client deduct 30% of their AGI into a private foundation and 30% more into a donor advice fund in the same year? Thanks, uh, thanks, Susan. Um, 
Well, the federal tax laws are somewhat complex, and you should uh, definitely contact your tax advisor for specific advice in your situation. But we'll say that when giving to a DAP and a private foundation, generally your combined deductions in one year can't exceed 50% of AGI. So you, you can't deduct 30% of AGI contribution to a DAP and 30% of AGI uh, to a private foundation in the same year. There are also limitations that Kelly mentioned earlier about how much of the gifts can be in securities versus cash. Um, but the, the good news is unused deductions can be carried forward for up to five years. And I just wanted to add to that answer that there's a good IRS publication about um, calculating charitable deductions, and it walks through kind of each of what each of the things that Todd just mentioned. Um, it's worth pulling that up and, and walking through that for whoever submitted that question. Okay. Um, Katie, how do you research nonprofits for receipt of grants? Sure. Um, so before that, you know, I would say have a plan in place, you know, to know kind of generally what issue areas motivate you. Um, and then from there, you know, particular uh, geographic areas and populations you might want to address. I just think if you can be more specific, the research will then be easier because it can be overwhelming. Um, there are several research databases. Um, Candid is one that I, I like that uh, GuideStar and Foundation Center combined to create Candid. Um, and so there is some kind of monitoring of, of financial data and information on there. Um, and they also offer the opportunity for nonprofits themselves to upload information about their programs, um, their impact, their leadership, all of that. Um, another one, Giving Compass is a great website for donors just starting off looking at different issue areas, wanting to read white papers, and that's all kind of public domain. Um, the Chronicle of Philanthropy is a publication donors can subscribe to, again, to just kind of start to read articles and get familiar with the landscape. Um, and then I would just say, you know, once you know where you want to focus, there are all kinds of donor kind of funder groups that are either thematically based or geographic um, areas where you can kind of come together with other donors and join together, whether it's a giving circle or just kind of a donor network. Um, and then the other thing I would say is some established funders actually are really proud to highlight their grantees on their website. So I would say, um, you know, again, once you know what you want to give to and where, you can start to familiarize yourself with other funders. And they're usually more than happy to talk to other funders um, and help kind of educate and share information about who they're supporting. So that's, that's a, a nice starting point, I would say. Okay, I think we have time for one more. Um, what about the use of qualified charitable distributions from retirement accounts? How are you integrating them into um, the planning, Todd? Thanks, Susan. Yeah, I saw a number of questions about uh, QCDs. So uh, first of all, just for those of you who aren't as familiar with QCDs, so generally a qualified charitable deduction is an otherwise a taxable distribution from a traditional IRA other than an uh, ongoing simple or, or SEP IRA uh, owned by an individual who's over uh, age 70 and a half and that's paid directly to the, uh, from the IRA to a qualified charity. QCDs can be used to fulfill all or part of a person's minimum required distribution um, and the maximum allowable annual QCD is $100,000. So again, you should consult your tax advisor for your specific situation. Um, if you're in or near retirement and you have substantial assets in an IRA and, uh, and also have charitable intent, and I guess additionally, if you're in one of the top federal um, marginal tax brackets, it is worth taking a close look at QCDs as a charitable giving option. Of course, you know, it supplies, uh, you have to be 70 and a half to take advantage of it. And QCDs don't have some of the other benefits of DAF, such as naming charitable advisors and anonymity, but they certainly have uh, some clear tax advantages in certain situations. One other thing to note, uh, DAFs aren't eligible to receive uh, distributions for qualified charitable distributions. It can only go to public charities, non-donor advised fund public charities, but a donor advised fund can be named as a beneficiary of an IRA and therefore funded when someone's, uh, at someone's death. We've had a number of clients who've done this, so, uh, so that's certainly an option. Okay, thank you. Well. There are some other questions, and we will send those over to our speakers to answer uh, offline uh, in their discretion. But I think we are going to have to wrap things up now. So, Todd, I'll turn it over to you to wrap it up. 
Thanks, Susan. And I'd like to thank the Trust and Estates team for their partnership on this webcast and Katie and Kelly for joining today to share their perspectives. And most importantly, I'd really like to thank all our guests for joining today. I hope you found the discussion valuable. At Fiduciary Trust Charitable, we're committed to providing donors an exceptional level of personal service, flexibility, and innovation to help you or your clients achieve their charitable goals. I encourage you to reach out to me at teckler at fiduciary-trust.com um, or uh, the number that's provided uh, with this webcast. Thanks again for joining. Thanks.